0: H.T. Smartcast You're listening to a Hindustan Times production Brought to you by H.T. Smartcast
1: We live in the golden age of athleticism Everywhere around the world Sports people are getting faster, stronger, more explosive They're recovering from injuries quicker One of the primary reasons for this Is the rapidly advancing field of sports science Welcome to Secrets of Sports Science, a podcast series into the exciting and ever-changing world of elite sporting performance. I'm your host, Rudranil Sengupta, and each week, I'll be talking to leading experts from the field to bring you a peek into the makings of a modern athlete. There's something about building muscle that brings out the obsessiveness in us. Just go to YouTube or any of the social media platforms and And just look at how many videos and resources there exist on the internet giving you advice about how to build muscle. And of course, when you see athletes, look at them in action at the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham right now. You see our boxers, you see our weightlifters, and you see what they can do with that body. And you begin to understand just why we get so obsessed about building muscles. So here's my question, what are the basics of muscle building? What's, what does hypertrophy mean? Um, does building muscle automatically mean that you're getting stronger? Is strength the same as power? To answer some of these critical questions on building muscles, I have with me somebody who has helped scores of India's top athletes do just that. Abhinav Manathanath is a strength and conditioning coach at the Inspired Institute of Sports in Bellary, one of our finest sporting institutions. He's worked uh, for over a decade as a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, He's worked with members of the Indian cricket team. Um, He's worked with some of our finest Olympians, uh, including Bajrang Punia. Uh, All our wrestlers and boxers, in fact, uh, go to him. And, uh, And he's worked with Neeraj Chopra at a very critical time in his career when Neeraj Um, Had the career-threatening injury to his throwing arm and he had to undergo a surgery to his elbow and He had to recover and find all of that strength and power that he had in that arm So he's one of the people you could thank For Neeraj's incredible and unprecedented gold for India Abhinav, uh, thank you so much for taking time out and uh, joining us here on The Secrets of Sports Science. Um, It's wonderful to have you on board.
0: Thank you for having me on the show.
1: You must be following the uh, Track and Field World Championships going on in Oregon right now. Uh, Who are the athletes you are following?
0: Niraj Chopra.
1: Who else? Of course, because you worked with him. Um, you know when he when he had the shoulder injury and he was uh, trying to get back in shape. What a critical time that was to work with him. Um, and of course, Avinash Saple also trains at Inspire Institute. So and he just qualified for for the Steeplechase finals. So yeah. Um, so I'll have my eyes on him as well. A wonderful athlete there. So we're talking about muscles today. Um, and before we get into this, uh, what I want to do is, you know, there's so much information available uh, online, everywhere, and, and you know, for anybody who wants to um, build muscles or or is just interested in fitness. Um, so I just want to get something very basic out of the way first, which is that there are four pillars to muscle building, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, one is there is no short. There are no shortcuts. You can't do it quickly or or whatever. You have to put in the time and you have to do it consistently. So consistency is point one. Point two is progressive overload, which is basically a, a, a nice uh, technical way of saying that you know start with a small amount of weight that you can lift comfortably. Then when you get come you know when you when you know that you are doing it right and everything, then progress to a slightly uh, uh, heavier weight and 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 so on and so forth till you are you know, starting to build muscle. Um, so progressive overload. The third is rest, which is when your muscles are actually being repaired and built. If you don't get rest, if you don't sleep enough, it's no matter how much you're lifting and what you're doing, it's probably just going to hurt you rather than help you. And the last one is nutrition. You need to treat your body right uh, so that, you know, all the workout that you're going to do, they, they, there is enough fuel, there's enough fuel to repair the muscles and to grow them. So these are the four pillars consistency, progressive overload, rest, and nutrition. So we are not going to talk about these. Okay, because because we know about it. Now, what I want to know from you, since you work with work with the highest level of athletes uh, in India, is that what are the nuances beyond these four pillars? Okay, what are the things that you know the regular person does not know um, but is very, very important somebody is trying to build muscle
0: right as you said correctly if you hit these four boxes pretty much you're sorted but I think further progress happens only when you focus on those small, finer details. So just right. to start off, let's say your max capacity for any given lift is let's say 100 kilos. It could be your back squat, it could yeah. be your bench press, deadlift, whatever it is. If in case you are not hitting a specific volume within a particular percentage of your max capacity, then your progress will stall. You will hit a point of stagnation. And what most people encounter is that once the novice effect is gone, once your beginner's luck faces is uh, passed people don't tend to right. make progress and that's most likely because you're not hitting the right volume at a particular right intensity bracket. So, for example, if you happen to lift 70 percentage of your max capacity, which is 70 kilos yes. of 100 kilogram absolute load, if in case you don't accumulate X number of reps across N number mm-hmm. of sets then you might not actually make progress. Some people tend to stall and float around and then just feel and they equate exertion for progress. That's not necessarily the case. As you said, if you don't recover well, if you don't eat well, you might feel like you've had a hard hard session. But in fact, you're not creating any physiological change there. So I think it's very important people find the right intensity zone for whatever adaptation they want to make in the body, whether it could be hypertrophy or strength gain or endurance, and find the right volume of reps to hit the exact... Right.
1: Zones. Right. So one of the one of the concepts that, of course, is very important to you uh, is is uh, and maybe some some of our listeners don't don't know about this is uh, is the concept called one RM or uh, one rep max. It's the it's the heaviest amount of uh, a weight that you can lift for one perfect reputation. Now, why is it important to know what your one RM is? Because that is how you sort of then from there you kind of start structuring what is needed for the person. Isn't that right? So can, can you take me through that process a little
0: Yeah, so as you said, one arm would be the max uh, concentric lift that you can have in any particular lift. It could be bench press, deadlift, squat, any given exercise, the maximum load that you can lift for one clean rep without any technical breakdown. Unless you know that, how would you ever be able to find what's the right weight for creating a particular adaptation? For example, as I spoke earlier, if you want to create or if you want to build muscle strength, then you need to work around a certain rep range. That's on the basis of certain physiological mechanism that happens inside the body. But if that's not your goal, if you want to create muscle size, which is hypertrophy, then you might have to probably increase the reps by three or four than if you were lifting for strength and endurance again for the higher reps and optimize the rest interval accordingly. So unless you know what's your max capacity, if let's say, let's use 100 kilos as the one RM for any given lift, you will probably right. start loading 20 kilos or 30 kilos and assume that it is hard, but it might not be hard or it might not actually be sufficient enough to create any particular adaptation in the body. So I always, when I design a program for any given particular adaptation, always look at what is a minimal effective dose. So you understand what's the quality that you want to create. And then for every quality, there is a minimal effective dose that you have to throw in. And you'll only be able to find out the MEd minimal effective load dose if you know the one repetition max and you need not test your one repetition max because it's quite strenuous, there are chances for injuries. You could also do a multiple RM test, like a three RM, five RM test and then you know extrapolate your one RM. Calculate something. There are many predictive equations that you can use to calculate your one RM and then calculate whatever intensity zones that you want to work at. So there's clear definitive guidelines. If you want to create hypertrophy in a particular body part this is the particular intensity zone that you have to uh, load on the bar so that all goes so I on think it's
1: very interesting what you said right now about uh, about different different uh, loads and different intensities and reps for different uh, situations uh, and you said if you want hypertrophy you do this hypertrophy basically building bigger muscles and if you want strength you do this are you saying that bigger muscles don't necessarily equate to more strength
0: that i mean When you watch somebody who is fairly big and muscular, you might assume that they are strong. But if you watch strongmen and powerlifters, they probably are more stronger than any bodybuilders that you will ever meet. That doesn't mean that they're not big, but they are big, but they're not as big as a bodybuilder. So that's just a byproduct of the training that they put their body through, the nutrition and the supplements that they take. So definitely you need to add strength for you to even build muscle size. But at a particular stage, both tends to separate from each other. And if you really want to build strength, then there is a particular training regimen that you have to follow. And if you're chasing muscle size, like a proper bodybuilder, then you work at different, different intensity zones. So anything close to your one reputation max, let's say you are lifting 90%, 85% percentage, percentage plus, that tends to create muscular strength. Slightly on the lower end, between 70 to 80% tend to create hypertrophy in the body. And anything lesser than that, you start working on building endurance. Right. Right.
1: So, so you, you actually need to lift lesser for uh, for volume, uh, for muscle size, than to build strength. So to build strength, you're really pushing yourself right to the limit. Uh, like you said, 80-85% of one RM is, is, is very, very heavy duty stuff. You're going to get knocked out for a couple of days after you do that.
0: Exactly. There will be a lot of nervous system drainage when you plan your training routine around that. So, right. Going back to the point that we discussed about muscular strength, if let's say somebody is lifting 85 to 90% of their one RM, it's fairly un- understandable that you may not be, might not be able to hit that very frequently in a week. So your training frequency might actually fall down to 3 or 2 in a week as opposed to bodybuilding splits where uh, you might do maybe 5 to 6 workouts in a week. So everything is dependent on the intensity and the volume that you throw in at that particular intensity bracket.
1: Obviously, when you work with athletes, um, you, you only have like a very small amount of time when they're not in competition or when the season is not, uh, has not started and things like that to actually work on things like strength, right? to build strength, because uh, that would leave them so fatigued that they wouldn't be able to compete in, in in any meaningful way. So you wouldn't do that when the season is on. Um <clears throat> So tell me a little bit about how, uh, especially since you work with wrestlers who obviously need a lot of strength, um, how do you kind of periodize this and, and when do you work with, uh, what, what is the time limit you have in which to build some strength into them?
0: So for you to create any meaningful change within the system, as you said currently we might need a couple of weeks. You can't expect a change to be made in a week or two. So, typically if you get an off-season for six to eight weeks, then that's a golden period where you can really dial things in, narrow down the program to one element, which would be strength or hypertrophy. We don't really work on hypertrophy because it's weight restricted sport, boxing or wrestling. So mostly it will be strength-related goals. And then you start building a program where you hit all the intensity zones and then you can build your strength up reasonably within six to eight weeks time frame. So the mental construct that I generally use when I design a program is am I designing a program for creating a meaningful change for the athlete or am I creating a program just for maintenance purpose of whatever quality that we might have developed earlier or am I designing a program just so that they can tolerate mat or ring or pitch related work. So you need to manage your exercise choice, your volume, intensity, everything based on that decision that you make in the first place. Right So if It's right before a comp Two weeks before a comp You really can't Create a program For an actual physiological change That would not be An ideal thing to do So you design a program That will just Enable them to do Things in the ring Better And also maintain qualities That you might have developed Over a period of time Right So
1: mostly maintenance when When you are Going closer to competition And uh, yeah, because physiological adaptation is is obviously a very painful process. It, uh, the way muscle uh, grows is uh, is basically you know when you exercise you get little micro tears in your muscle fiber, and uh, when you rest those those tears are being repaired, and and depending on what kind of input you put, it, this is all putting things very simplistically, your your repair and will result in growth, and um, that that's a painful process, and you don't want to do do that obviously when you have to actually perform um, you'd want to do this when you have lots of time to rest and and recover and it's great like you know you you you, you talked about different kinds of programs and obviously different athletes different sports have different demands and, and it's it's just such a wondrous feel to know how many different things you can do and how many different things muscles do you have slow twitch fibers and fast twitch fibers you have um, you know all all these different qualities of things that are happening um, one of the things that i think uh, people are not very aware of is the is the relationship between our central nervous system and and muscles uh, muscles in fact work because the central nervous system is telling them to work uh, so there is a very intimate connection but you might think that okay, so that connection is automatic. You know, that, that, what am I supposed to do about it? But there are things to be done, isn't that right? And, and when you work with athletes, you work in, you work to improve their CNS uh, system and and how it how it works with muscles. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
0: True, a- an interesting point to start would be when we rehab athletes who are injured on yeah. one side and the other side is completely. Uh, Trainable. So, you start training the uninvolved limb, uninjured limb, and then you will see a cross-education happens in the involved limb as well. So, research says that an wow. av- average of 8 to 22 percentage of strength gain can be made if you train your left side and it will cross over to your right side. Now, that might not actually make sense logically and I mean, when you hear that information, but research has shown that. Now, people might wonder why that's the case because everything starts from the motor cortex and you have your nerves branching out to different different muscles, muscle fibers. Mm. So, everything is commanded from the central system which is your CNS and your brain. So, any input yes. given to that will have a cascading effect through every channel in the body. So, any contraction of muscle is initiated from your brain, your motor cortex and primarily if you are somebody who is lifting for strength pure strength gain then there is a lot more neural involvement and the the hypertrophy work might not actually be as uh, nerve taxing as your strength work so and hence your recovery protocols ha- also has to be managed based on what kind of training you do so as you said correctly cns plays a huge role in muscle building strength building and you will see that during the initial phase of any training program the first four to six weeks any change that you make within the system is purely neural in nature and it's only after that you start making any architectural change within the muscle any structural change
1: can i just take you back there and ask you what do you mean when you say that the first phase is just about changing neural network what what do you do and how do you do that so
0: let's say you are a beginner and then you start lifting and i introduce you to three basic lifts squat deadlift and bench press any increment in load or any additional pound that you put on the bar is directly an input given by the nervous system. It's not necessarily that your muscles have become big or you've started building bigger and bigger muscle. So the cross-sectional area changes happens only after a while. So the first couple of weeks of any positive change happens because your central nervous system is able to recruit more muscle fibers, more motor units, synchronize it better. So all those physiological process that happens as a part of that exposure to that task. And any right. skill acquisition, also for that matter, the first couple of weeks of any skill that you acquire is highly commanded from your uh, brain, and then all the peripheral right. components comes into play. Right.
1: So basically, you're saying, okay, I've, i am a complete beginner. I've just started lifting some weights. The first thing that responds is the brain, saying that, okay, here's this is what we have to do, so we better be ready for it, and it starts firing accordingly, um, and and. And basically, the, the, this is a very fascinating thing for me because, uh, you know, I, I do a fair amount of exercise myself and um, I, I'm quite fond of doing pull-ups and, and things on the bar, which I really like. And um, I once had an injury and I went to, to the physio and, uh, and they said, okay, so, you know, contract your lats. And I know my lats are huge muscles on my back, right? But I had no idea how to just isolate and contract the lats. So that is basically my brain... Not my central nervous system not knowing how to recruit the muscles of the lats, which turned out it turned out was a problem because I could do like say 20 reps on the on a pull up bar, but I was actually not engaging the lats while doing that. I was engaging all kinds of other muscles uh, which were which got damaged because of that. Um, And so, that is how important it is that you need to know your central nervous system needs to know how to recruit and how to fire muscles. How do you train for that? How do you train for that?
0: Any task that you do within the realm of physical activity definitely will have a nervous system involvement. And as an exposure to that task, let's say somebody is doing boxing, you'll always find an asymmetry between the left and right. And that's not because a muscle is being overworked or underutilized it's, it might also be because one part of the body is neurally more connected than the other part so with naked eye observation you might not be able to see any visible change between left and right that's when technology like force plates and uh, you know uh, measurement systems comes into play and you will probably see there is probably greater asymmetry that, than what you actually want within an athlete and then you might actually You need asymmetry or rather as an exposure to the task you will have fair amount of asymmetry but if it is outside the limits of what's normal then you might actually try to bring that down to a reasonable range. So if somebody is asymmetrical by let's say 30 percentage you might not be able to watch it with your naked eyes but then when you put them on a force platform and then you ask them to jump the jump might look absolutely perfect only when you get the results you might see that the right is producing 35 percentage more force than the left. So then there is a red flag there. So that's probably one of, the injury risk as well. one, one of the reasons might be the muscle is over dominant one side but it could also be that your nervous system is not recruiting one side of the body as well as the other side so you put them through tasks or single leg training and then get the other side going and then you will find over a bit of time that it will all even out to a reasonable bandwidth right so
1: so was, when you say single leg training that in technical terms is also called unilateral uh, when you're just using one one side of the body now um, is that an important part of your uh, of your process uh, in in making athletes go through these unilateral exercises to see whether there are imbalances or to correct those imbalances
0: definitely definitely Because most sports are not really done in a squat stance or a deadlift stance. It's either staggered, it's either moving from one stance to the other. It's very dynamic in nature. So definitely there is a place for exercises like squat and deadlift. But also you need to factor in the movement specificity within the sport and put them on single leg tasks. So single leg and single arm. So unilateral, upper body and lower body. One for the sake of correcting the imbalances and also for creating... Greater stability within the system. Because when you take somebody off of a bilateral stance, two-legged stance, you might see a lot of compensation starts happening. So, your balance, your proprioception, your stability, everything gets challenged. So, that's also one element that we look at when we design programs.
1: So, basically, you could could be squatting very heavy weights or you could be doing a lot of volume of squats. But, you know, if I tell you to do a split squat, you might start struggling. Because, uh, yeah, right. And that would be a red flag. But, um, but going back to the central nervous system question and, and, and how do you, you know, and, and sometimes I get the feeling that when people say that you need to be aware of your body, what they're saying is that your central nervous system needs to know how to fire and recruit muscles. Um, how do you how do you make somebody become aware of their body? Through
0: exercise, you mean? In the context of exercise?
1: Yeah, yeah in the context of exercise, yeah.
0: So as the first point that we discussed, gradual exposure to a particular task within the technical constraints that you might want them to move, And initially, there will be a lot of noise within their movement, and which is fine. If somebody is new to any lifting, there will be a fair amount of noise within their execution. But then you let that noise sit within the movement and over a period of time, the noise will reduce and you will start finding the movement as appealing as you want it to be. And as a response of any adaptation that happens neurally, you will find that the weight that they can handle also goes Higher and higher and higher, then you will see architectural changes, you will see cross-sectional area of the muscle goes up, then you will see their work capacity increases, so it's not uh, an isolated process that you put anybody through. In, in simple terms, I think you just need to expose them to a task consistently for a long enough duration so that they find some stability within the task and also can move meaningful loads through full range of motion.
1: Right. Would you also be uh, like, you know, telling them to feel a particular muscle or putting your hand there and saying, OK, can you can you contract just this part?
0: Uh, you know, that that kind of stuff, just to give them feedback on, on how to recruit. Specifically target one region of the body or you want to create regional hypertrophy, then you might actually use external cues and then ask them to contract and fire those muscles properly. They might not have an idea initially, but you keep reiterating this fact and then eventually they might start feeling that muscle. And I always tell people that you'll always... Feel all the wrong muscles before you start hitting the right one, which is fine. But over a period of time, you will start somebody starts doing bench press, they'll start pain in their shoulder, neck, traps, all the muscles that's not involved. And chest will be the last one that you hear. But over a period of time, you will start recruiting the exact muscles that that are supposed to work. But that's how it's supposed to work, actually. You get all the weaklings out of the system, get all of them stronger, all the stabilizers, neutralizers, and then you start hitting the right muscle in the right angle. Right. Um, is, is the,
1: the, again, uh, central nervous system, the CNS, is, the, is it possible to just train the CNS in, in a way that will uh, help you gain more strength or
0: explosiveness? So the task has to be demanding enough, uh, either in terms of velocity or mechanical load. So let's say if it's a strength-based lift, the load has to be meaningful enough for your CNS to be challenged or if it is a speed-based task like, for example, sprint, it has to be close to your maximal sprint capacity. Let's say you're running sub-maximal speed, uh, for example, 6.5 meters per second for 10 minutes. That's not really going to task tax your nervous system as much as if you were to run at 9 meters per second for 10 seconds. So any sprint-based activity, any high altitude jumps, triple jump, long jump, standing broad jump, counter movement jump, maximal jumps—all these tasks are any maximal effort, velocity-based or strength-based, will tax your nervous system.
1: How do you work that into a program? You want to you want to get somebody to do that that maximal effort. How much of it should be uh, included? You know, I mean, how much volume of should should that be a part of the program?
0: That's where profiling comes. So when you get somebody, you need to assess and understand whether this guy is by default a velocity speed-based pingy guy or a strength-based grinding uh, individual. And if then it becomes a question of do you play for your strength or do you try to work on your weakness? So if you have enough time, then you start taking care of whatever the weakness is. So if anybody is older, let's say an athlete comes to me who is 25 plus 30, then you really cannot... Uh, get their weak point strong, so you just play for your strength. But if somebody is young and you find that they are velocity dominant, then there is huge scope for changing their strength capacity so that the velocity component will anyway stay there because they are by default wired like that. Then you get your strength up, you'll find an even balance. So when you profile them, you understand what's the characteristic of the muscle and then you incorporate that in the program. And that's where you make a decision whether you should have hops, jumps, sprint. Or strength-based lifts like squats and lifts or bench press. It depends on the individual.
1: Right. But the maximal effort part of the exercise uh, it, it, should that be done, say, once a week, twice a week, or maybe it's just uh, 10 minutes of a, of a one-hour session? How do you uh, How do you slot it in? How much of it is uh, you know done in you
0: So the volume will be really low, low. if you are. Uh, really, yeah, okay. it'll yeah. be really low. Within a session and the frequency of it will be very less across a week. You can't sprint Monday to Friday. You might actually sprint on a Monday, then take a day break, then probably do some sub-maximal speed endurance work on Wednesday, then sprint back again on Friday. Or if it's strength work, you might spread it across the weeks, do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or whatever split suits you and your lifestyle. Yeah. But the bottom line is the frequency has to be managed accordingly. You can't lift maximally every day. You might be able to do three sessions in a row, then you will fall down the curve and Correct. then you so, won't recover for at least yeah. 14 days. Some people say from a very hard grueling yeah. deadlift session, even trained yeah. people take about 14-15 days to recover. That's a long time to recover. Yeah. And that's not any that's peripheral, so yeah, that's not your muscles yeah. that's uh, recovering, that's your nervous system recovering. And the first quality that will take a hit when your central nervous system is fired, that you will be slow. So what you could do is before you go for a lifting session, Try a couple of box jumps. Try a couple of uh, counter movement jumps. And if you find yourself being very slow, then you probably know that you are not as ready as when your yes. CNS is fresh. So velocity, speed right. takes speed takes a hit when your nervous system is fried. So when you have, right. if you have access to tools like uh, push bands and gym awares, velocity tracking devices, attach them onto the uh-huh. bar and see what's the velocity that you acquire on the lift. So, if your normal velocity at a particular lift is, let's say, 0.8 meters per second and at the same load, if you see a decrement in the velocity by 0.2, then you know that you might actually be moving the same load but at a lesser speed, which indirectly tells you that sheerness is not really at point or it could be that you're not putting in maximal intent to the lift. So you cannot teach intent, intent is something that people has to have within themselves. You can use cues, you can command them to put intent, but for example, any any jumpers, if it is a plyometric session, their whole session might actually go for two, two and a half hours, but the only exercise within that program will be drop jumps, five reps. For two hours, mm-hmm. that's what they do. They do a drop jump, okay. and then they wait for at least half an hour before they go for the next rep. That's their whole workout, and then they are... Wow. So,
1: what's what's happening there? What's happening in this workout? That's, that's I've never heard of such a thing. So,
0: if it's... That's fascinating. So, when, you, when people talk about plyometrics uh, in early Soviet plyometrics used to be plyometrics with an i and not a y so plyometrics is shock training and if you do real plyometrics which how you're supposed to do and you put technical constraints on an exercise like drop jump so the instruction will be you jump off a 15 centimeter box your ground contact time cannot be more than 200 milliseconds and you need to jump back to a greater height than where you started. So you put these three constraints, it becomes very difficult okay. for the athlete to do so. You might actually be able to drop and jump as high as you want, but not maintain a ground contact of 200 milliseconds. 200 milliseconds is probably, you can't even watch it with your eye if this guy is doing right. it less than 200 milliseconds. Right. You probably could look at the way how the feet lands, you could use sound to understand, but if you put a force plate or a contact mat under their feet, you will exactly get feedback as to whether they are doing this particular task within that time band. The reason being when they hit the board during long jump or high jump, you don't have 2 seconds before you take off the ground. You might only have 100 milliseconds, 80 milliseconds during probably the max velocity phase of your sprint. You're talking about 0.8 meter per second. That's yeah, probably because f- you want that. You want that.
1: Want that uh, kind of momentum to work for you. But uh, if you take too much time to go off,
0: exactly. Yeah. That's why you put constraints so, but, on but, tasks yeah. like drop jumps.
1: Right. So, but what fascinates me is you saying that you you're going to do one drop jump and then you're going to wait for half an hour and do the next one. Why would you?
0: Why would you do it like this? Because it takes time uh, to recover. Because uh, one uh, maximal effort, then your nervous system is not ready for the next effort within the next three four minutes. You might have to wait for at yeah. least seven minutes six minutes before you go for the next effort well you can do the next jump in the next 30 seconds but the ground contact time might actually go and become 300 milliseconds that completely defeats the purpose these are the nuances of programming that you might actually need to look at when you're planning for elite uh, athletes but
1: but the good thing for somebody who's not an elite athlete and wants to adapt some of these things to their own (coughs) workout regimen is that for, for really stimulating the central nervous system, you need to do very small volume and infrequently at a very, very high level. So you don't need to do like go out and like kill yourself and puke after you've done like uh, 200 sprints. No, that's not the way to do it. You just need to do a very short one and, and that's how your uh, nervous system learns.
0: Um, it has an inverse relationship, right? Higher the intensity, lesser the volume has to be. Right. and the other way around
1: um, we have almost uh, we're almost out of time of enough uh, but before we go I would just like to ask you are there any other small tips and tricks that uh, that you think that people uh, who are let's say already um, working out at a fairly regular level uh, but things that they can adapt from the elite system um, to make their workouts even better
0: Anything that's actionable I think th- there is a concept called in all number there is a chart called in all chart. So, you can just Google it and then it's called intensity number of lifts and that chart has become very popular within powerlifting community but as you said, anybody who is… a recreational gym goer can also use that chart so now there are there are that charts like prelipins chart which tells you the rep zones and intensities and the number of sets to be done but this in all chart tells you what's an optimal zone that you need to hit just like the acute chronic workload ratio in cricket and any other team sport this exactly tells you if you are hitting the minimal effective dose within a session and across a week if you are actually within a zone of loading or maintenance or undertrained right. or overtrained So there are different bands that you can actually uh, look at and then understand that whether you're hitting the right zone. So that's something very actionable. And as all mathematical models, this is not a completely foolproof model. There are limitations to this model as well. But as a starting point, if somebody has moved from an OV stage to an intermediate stage and is trying to figure out why they're not making progress, it could be because the first point that we discussed, they're not hitting the exact number of reps. To be done within a particular intensity zone or as you said they are exceeding the maximal recoverable volume of their body and then just burning themselves out and the program is not viable enough they are throwing in everything they are doing kettlebells they are doing TRX they are doing sliders they are doing sprints they are doing anything right. that comes to their mind and uh, yeah, that's not really a and
1: that, then that happens because we have got so much overload of uh, information and so much access to this kind of stuff that, uh, that I see a lot of people who actually go through this kind of Get overwhelmed by trying to do everything. Um, prioritize and periodize. That that should be a that should be a motto. Exactly. <laughs> Abhinav, thank you so much for joining me today, and uh, and we'll both keep our eyes on the uh, track and field world championships and uh, on Nira Chopra, um, and uh, and we'll celebrate when
0: when he wins the gold. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much for having me on the show.
1: This was an episode of Secrets of Sports Science. I'll be back next week with a new guest. Until then, if you have any questions, you can write to me at rudranil at gmail.com. That's R-U-D-R-A-N-E-I-L at gmail.com. For the latest updates on this podcast, do like and follow at Smartcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to HTSmartcast.com.